Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 8, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. I am Rick, um, author of The Jesus-Centered Life, editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, and I'm sitting next to Becky Hodges, the Becky Nators. Hello! So, so today we're going to be joined with a special guest whose name is Roxanne Stone. She's an old friend that we that I used to work with many years ago, and now she's editor-in-chief at the Barna Group, which is the leading uh, Christian-focused research organization in the world. And uh, Roxy is in New York and works as their editor-in-chief, and Barna has partnered with the Josh McDowell Ministry to produce a new comprehensive study called The Porn Phenomenon. It's a massive, really well-done study of the practice of pornography and how it has changed in our culture and how people relate to it and how it's impacting our culture and individuals within our culture. It's, it is, by the way, available at uh, barna.org, B-A-R-N-A.org. Um, if you want to check out the, the whole thing, uh, it's super useful, especially if you're a parent, to read through this sort of cutting-edge research on a huge issue in our culture. I mean, it's, it is a massive issue in our culture. So they, they have developed uh, a comprehensive database of spiritual indicators relative to faith issues of uh, Christian people in America. So Roxy led the team that produced this comprehensive study, and uh, it's, it's based on a survey of existing social science research and nearly 3,000 new interviews with uh, teenagers in the United States, adults, uh, and Protestant church leaders. And so what we're going to do today is dive into this research report with Roxy and talk about it in terms of how does this fit underneath our relationship with Jesus? What is our followership of Jesus? How does that influence the issue of intimacy and sexuality in our life? And what did Jesus have to say or model about intimacy and also the role of our body in our life with him? So um, we're going to dive into this this interview, uh, Becky and I both interviewed her, so you'll hear both of us on this, and then we'll come back at you at the back end of this. So let's listen. We love the the focus of this study, which you know really attempts to address the root causes of this addiction to pornography, not just mm-hmm. the behavior itself and and how destructive it is, but what are what's 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 upstream from this addiction. So in your in your view, maybe you can go through some of what those root causes are? Sure. Well, I can certainly um, address some of what we really have seen, both in the um, in the actual research for the porn phenomenon, but also sort of overlaying that with some of our other research. So in particular, I think one of the, one of the main studies that we've done over the last couple of years that's shed a lot of light um, on a number of, of larger contextual trends is what we call a sort of 
I mean, shift toward a morale, like a morality of self-fulfillment. So we've seen, uh, we've just seen in a number of ways the way people are really defining morality has more and more to do with um, sort of a relativism that in Christianity we often think of that um, as sort of a, 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 a word that used to be used a lot when we were talking apologetics and talking about objective truth and that sort of thing. But what we've really seen is the way that people are now kind of thinking about and sort of defining this new moral code is really about sort of the the impact on on the person or the impact on sort of happiness or an impact on somebody else's right. Well, we see this so, in culture, too. I mean, with Brene Brown absolutely. and Glennon Doyle, you know, you've got a lot of people who are really putting a, a lot of emphasis on what's the best thing for me? What's going to make me the most happy? Right. So we asked, um, you know, we asked people in in ways how they sort of define morality. So, for example, whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. Millennials, um, about 41, 43% of millennials agree with that somewhat. 31% agree strongly. So about three-quarters of the millennial population would agree with that, um, and that's significantly higher than any other generation. So as you get down to Gen Xers, it's closer to 60%, and Boomers, it's closer to 50%, and then among elders, only about 40% would agree with that. Um, so, and so let me ask you, do you, so think, do you yeah. think they're just being more honest than previous generations, or is there significant fundamental difference? I think there are some, some significant fundamental differences. In, in that there's, there are ways that, um, indi- I mean, we, we talked about individualism for decades, and I think this is somewhat the, the, the expected trajectory of individualism, where you're kind of getting to a point where the larger social good is, is still important, but it's more about, uh, more about the larger social good and definition of how individuals have happiness. So people care a lot about tolerance right now, for example, mm-hmm. or care a lot about, you know, we see it in the LGBTQ conversation and same-sex marriage and Black Lives Matter and immigration. There's a lot of care for individuals' rights, and there's a real, a real priority placed on people being able to have whatever they want. And, and, and in so many ways, that's beautiful because it creates a ton of empathy and it creates a lot of, there, it's, it's bound to sort of individual relationships. But the larger question of um, social good as a collective is, is less the question. And I think if you go back, you know, if you go back to elders, for example, the sort of the great or the, the great generation, if you look at their, the sort of the, the social network of their lives, so much of it was built around these communal institutions. So that's one of the things like the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, or you had a lot of sort of rotary clubs. Or even or the church. Lions clubs, or even the church. So all of these sort of different institutions that were really committed to bringing people together and really committed to this sort of overarching good as opposed to an individual good, those have really gone away. So as more and more people um, and, and again, this is sort of even seeps into sort of the, the realities of our everyday lives. We move around more often. We're more transient. We move jobs more often. 
we, we move away from our families. We don't go to the same church for our whole lives. Like so many of those sort of fundamental like threads that tied communities together have really um, have really been been torn. And so, so in in essence, your life is about all of the decisions that you're making for your life. And maybe you know once you do get married and have a family, maybe for that nuclear family. But we're also seeing, of course, a trend toward people getting married later and later in life, having kids later and later in life. So there's a long decade, you know, from 18 to through this sort of what we call extended adolescence, delayed adolescence, emerging adulthood, whatever you want to call it, 18 to sort of 30, 31, where people are really disaffected from institutions, even from family, um, in a way that they really haven't been in the past. And they're sort of wandering around on their own, living in going to college and then moving to a different city and getting a job and then moving and getting another job. Well, and, and so that time all is all about them, about. too. That time is exactly. just all about whatever exactly. they want to do every day. Exactly. <laughs> but so you're... it promotes a lot of individualism, and it promotes, again, this sort of morality of, like, what's the best for me? Can I, um, uh, Roxy, Roxy yeah. let me stop you there just for a second. So um, that's a, you call that a morality of self-fulfillment, but how is addiction self-fulfillment? Yeah. I mean, it, uh, really, when we get drilled down into this, uh, it might f- feel self-fulfilling at the front door, but addiction clearly has damaging self-fulfillment uh, consequences. So there's a disconnect there. Well, sure. I mean... Nobody, but nobody sets out thinking that they're going to get addicted to something. You know, nobody takes the first drink or a first drag on a cigarette or looks at pornography for the first time thinking that it's going to be an addiction, and that's the insidious nature of an addiction. But we don't, because we've sort of erased some of these these mores that we had and this sort of idea of um, this this connection to this broader community that probably would have helpfully or unhelpfully heaped shame on some of these these um, issues, we, we are able to hide in a lot of ways, hide in plain sight in some ways our addictions, and also begin to sort of justify them as, well, I'm the only one this is hurting, or I, I'm the only one that, ha- that, has an, that this has an impact on. Um, and so it's really just up to me whether I think that pornography or whatever else is is right or wrong for my life. There isn't sort of this question of, an, of, a, of a higher moral standard yeah. other than what's kind of right for my life. Yeah, and yet what we see kind of at the outgrowth of the impact of this, I think it's easy to see this in so many arenas, is that we have a diminishing experience of intimacy in our culture the more that yeah. pornography and connections to pornography are normalized as this is good for me, but except that it's undermining my ability to have intimate relationship in life. Becky has a, a great story about this of a, sh- of a show you just watched last night, I think. that. So I um, last night, you might already know about this, Roxy, but uh, someone told me, oh, you're going to do that. You should watch this Netflix documentary called Hot Girls Wanted, right. which I've immediately I'm now like oh man it's hard to watch these things this is like going into the cave with people right but one of the the quotes that was so arresting to me is this one of the girls was talking and just she was just kind of being open about her experience and she said she said I I just don't really feel comfortable having sex outside of porn anymore 
And what the context of what she was trying to convey from that was, you know, basically intimacy is scarier to me than this sort of like, I can put my mind away and pretend this isn't happening. And I just was like, I can't even handle this comment. It's so sad to me. Well, um, the other, the other, uh, the other corollary to this is that, to the extent that our ability to be intimate with one another is is affected by this, it also necessarily impacts our ability to be intimate with Jesus, in our in our spiritual life. Um, we we are we are lowering the waterline on our ability to be intimate in in so many ways, and and is there a, in, in I don't know if this is based in your research or just based out of your experience, but knowing that this is true, and knowing this overlaps into our relationship with Jesus as well, is in what ways can a lifestyle of following Jesus reclaim intimacy and change the game relative to our attitude toward pornography as well? I know that's a huge question, but <laughs> attach, attach yourself any way you want to it. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in response to some of that, I think it's it's hard to prove that pornography, the ways that pornography affects our personal relationships. Um, most people who use pornography, according to our research, actually very, very few people say that it's had a negative impact on their marriage or on their life with their significant other. But, of course, that's their perception of it. And most of the people who use pornography regularly are comfortable with the amount of pornography that they use. So there isn't... There isn't really a sense of guilt around it um, or a, a desire necessarily to stop. And I think if, if they were aware of the various ways that it might be hurting them, of course they would want to stop, or the ways that might be hurting their um, significant other, they might want to stop. I think uh, in in terms of in terms of relationship with Jesus, like I mean, I think any pastor can help answer that well, and and knows that you know there is that we are we are body and soul, and in so many ways when we try to sort of detach that, um, there are ways that we're not living sort of an embodied presence in the world, and, as, and, and, and in ways that Christianity hasn't emphasized our embodied presence, that's been somewhat of a disconnect for a lot of society, particularly in the one that we live in right now, which is an incredibly physical society. What do you mean by embodied then, presence, just so, we, just so we know what we're talking about here? Sure. Um, I mean, just sort of this, this we're, not, we're not just soul, we're not just spirit, we're not just head or emotions. Like, we live in physical bodies, and we walk a physical earth and consume physical food, and, like, the material world is a huge part of, of the, our life on this earth and part of what Jesus did when he came to earth. He became body. And so there's there's ways that I think um, we all know that Christianity has pendulum swung at different times of being very afraid of the physical body, being very afraid of sex and sexuality, and, and at other times just emphasizing sort of the spiritual so much that we've neglected sort of care for our bodies or respect for. And so I think there's there's a real call on the church and a real opportunity in the church today to sort of help people be able to connect their physicality, their sexuality, their their desires um, with with their faith and with a real calling toward discipline and a real calling toward purity in that way. Not 
not because there's they hate their bodies or not because they're afraid of their of expressing sexuality or of having intimate relationships, but an elevation of those things as something to be kept holy because God cares about those things because they're good gifts. And I think the more that we sort of as a church shame those, then the the reaction in the culture of moral self-fulfillment is to say, yeah, but those things feel good and they're a big part of our life and the church, and they're not really that big of a deal. And so what the church really needs to do is celebrate them, make them a big deal, but in a positive way, not in a sort of shameful, in a shameful way where the big deal is, is how bad they are. Instead, the big deal can be how good they are within the right context. Yeah, and, and I, think, um, I think some of this, um, uh, like many things in the Christian life, um, move toward compartmentalization. So my, bo- my body is compartmentalized, my spiritual life is compartmentalized, my emotional life, and, the, and, the, and they don't really bridge between each other. That's why I can do this without any problem doing that over there. And, yeah. and one of the things that comes up, I think, so if our relationship, if our intimate relationship with Jesus is to feed into every aspect of us, including our physical, the physical expression of us, and he is described in, in Hebrews 4 as a high priest who's faced all the things we have and did not sin, we have this like glaring elephant in the living room there that, um, well, he was never in a romantic relationship with a woman. Was was Jesus sexually tempted? Is that what he's? Right. Is that what the Bible is affirming? And it, what we know for sure is he was never married, and he was never sexually intimate. And so, therefore, as we are walking into this life where that's a very real issue in our life, how is it that Jesus can help us with this? How how is it that he? And I, I think there's some some room to explore that Jesus is the master of all forms of intimacy. He understands intimacy even within the context of the Trinity. There is a Trinity, the Trinity, so that we have an example of what intimacy looks like in the very nature of God. And yet, when you get to this practical level of how do I handle intimacy in my life and my, my sexual life, my body, and how it is tempted and attracted to things— it's almost easy to compartmentalize it because we don't see Jesus having much to say about it. So, so when I say all that, what's what's something that uh, that based on your immersion in this research and also ways forward out of this place, is there is there anything that speaks to what I just said? That, <laughs> um, you know, I I think certainly that we didn't speak specifically into that in the research, but you know, there's ways that the church can and should speak about sexuality. And I think, um, again, the sort of, the, the narrative that, that that our sexuality has nothing to do with our spirituality um, is, I think, one of, one of the more dangerous ones within the church, um, particularly in a culture that has celebrated sex to the degree that we have. So I think there's, it, 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 it is, it's always been a tough, a tough connection with Jesus in sex and sexuality. Um, and, and I think for men and women, for men because he wasn't in an intimate relationship, and for women because he wasn't a woman. And so in the ways that we're sort of, you know, in those ways that we're trying to relate to Jesus in those capacities, it can be difficult. 
I think that you hit on it when you talked about the sort of intimacy of the relationship within the Trinity. And I think that there are beautiful ways to explore intimacy within that relationship and also to sort of look to the Holy Spirit as a guide in sex and sexuality. And I think there's plenty of, of even just language and scripture that really um, can sort of help us see the way that um, the Holy Spirit is is fire and that, that there, there's there's so many ways that the Holy Spirit sort of has that that sort of mystic element to it that some of us really, that transcendent element that some of us really are seeking or experience within sex. So I, I think there's a lot of ways that the church can describe sex that, um, that can elevate it past a base human desire and into something that, that is an essential and beautiful part of the human experience as God intended it. The, the picture um, so that's important. the picture that I have in my mind is the prostitute who who interrupted the dinner of religious leaders to mm-hmm. do a very sensual, actually a very sensual thing to pour a jar of perfume over Jesus and wash her his feet with her tears and her hair. That was probably seen as extremely sensual. And so when we're yeah. when you're talking about how can the church create a, a, a situation where we're celebrating this instead of making it so bad that everyone just feels bad about themselves, Jesus really celebrated her in that moment, even though her behavior was probably very inappropriate. Um, especially for that setting. So I, I can see where I can see that what what you're saying that it's going to be a challenge for us to figure out where the lines are on that. And in a culture that I feel like is disappearing, not just in this type of thing, but I also my cousin lives in China. And I've, I've told this story before he lives in China. And he is, you know, a 20 some guy and he um, struggles because all of these young people get, get off work and go into virtual um, cafes to just you know check out until they go to bed and it's so it's mm-hmm. sort of beyond it's beyond pornography mm-hmm. it's about living out an intimacy that isn't um, with real people so and I just think of how many how many wives out there are dealing with hey I'm here I'm a person and I would love to be intimate with you and their husbands are hiding in the bathroom having a virtual experience that is severing intimacy in that relationship. And I think yeah. I think also embedded in the, in this is I mean this is a, uh, another elephant in the living room that pornography effectively commodifies and objectifies people. That's one of the dangers the, the chief danger for men who are engaged in pornography is that they come to a place where they see women objectified and commodified for their own usefulness, and the usefulness is for their own pleasure, which fits under your morality of self-fulfillment. But I think one of the the things to maybe explore through the on-ramp of self-fulfillment, self-fulfillment is not outside of the gospel, if you think of it in the broadest possible terms. Our salvation is the best form of self self fulfillment there is <laughs> to be sure. res- to be yeah. rescued and to be rescued into an intimate relationship that can be the source of all life, like it was for the woman at the well who was thrilled to have found a source of living water. <laughs> this was self fulfillment on steroids uh, for her, but in, in a way, it's it's almost shifting what what kind of self fulfillment we were created for. 
in the first place. Right. And, and, and to be able to worship Jesus, not just in, uh, in our emotional life and our spiritual life and our mental life, but with our bodies, that just sounds strange to our ears. <laughs> what? You mean raising my hands? No, no. I mean, with your whole body, what, it, what does it look like to worship Jesus with your whole body? That, that's a kind of conversation I think we should have instead of a purity conversation. It's a different deal. Purity sounds like taking away something. Worship sounds like giving into something. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. uh, One of the curious things here is, based on your research, there are some outside-in ways to deal with this issue of pornography, you know, uh, accountability, uh, guards on your computer, things like that. I would call outside-in guards Mm -hmm. against this. But Mm -hmm. what are some inside-out responses that your this Barna research suggests that might be helpful for for people who are earnest in finding a way out of this. Yeah, well, a couple of things. I mean, one one thing to note, which is you know worthwhile to mention, is that Christians don't view porn as much as the regular population, yeah. um, as the general population. Sure. So there's good news there. I mean, they are across gender, age. Um, they're, practicing Christians are, are less likely than the general population to be viewing it on any kind of regular basis. So with that said, they are 41% of practicing Christian males aged 13 to 24 are viewing porn semi-regularly. So it is still, it, it certainly still exists in the church, but there is good news there. And I think um, what we, one of the things that we haven't talked about that I, I think is really important is just this sort of level of acceptance around porn use that is that's the world that people are living in so when you talk to teenagers especially and young adults um they're just they're like they'll say that in the research more than half to most of their friends are using porn on a regular basis they say that when and if you take out the women the girls out of that then it skyrockets much higher than that and when they talk about pornography with their friends, the majority of people say that their conversations are either neutral, they don't discuss the morality of it, they're accepting, everybody just assumes you look at porn sometimes, or they're even encouraging. So only like 4%, I can't find the number right now, said that they're, that these are um, 18 to, or 13 to 24-year-olds, said that their friends would say pornography is... Um, a bad thing, so they would discourage them from using it. So the general sort of cultural view toward pornography is very casual, is very, it just sort of accepts it. So I think that's part of, the, so that's when I, when you talk about that sort of inside out, I think that's part of what's so difficult is that, first of all, you have this morality of self-fulfillment that people, that that's an inside thing. Um, because people have been brought up in this culture. And then there's sort of this just acceptance of it, which, again, sort of makes you feel like, hey, this is not really that big of a deal. And that's really, like, what people are feeling in the moment when they go to view pornography is, like, this isn't really that big of a deal. Everybody does this. Like, I'm not going to get addicted. It's just, just time. So it is, I think, like so many things, so many addictions, um, a huge part of it is just surrender, and a huge part of it is discipline. 
Um, and a huge part of it is, is not feeling like when you mess up, it's over because then it's easier to mess up the next day if you, if you sort of feel like, well, that's it. I'm awful, you know. Um, and so there's a lot of, I think, approaching it as in some ways a spiritual discipline. Um, and then I think the other thing that really bears out in the research is that people don't have anyone helping them with this. So those who do want to stop in our research, most of them said they, they don't have anyone they feel like they can talk to about pornography. Um, and most of them, a lot of the Christians said that they don't feel like their pastor is equipped to help them with this. And young pastors and youth leaders also say that this is an area where they don't feel equipped to help their constituents. So I think that's a big factor, too, is just the support group that we have about around it and the sense of how I think there's a lot of fear about how to talk about it in a way that that is like discourages people from using it, but doesn't shame people, especially when they know that as soon as they go out into culture and talk about it with their friends, they're being told it's fine. So I think there's, there's really a lot of, a lot of room for improvement in terms of, especially among youth and young adult leaders. How do we talk about this? um, And how do we offer support? Parents too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You you know, um, I know from experience in, in uh, having, some really close relationships with other men that one of the keys to all of this for men is everything done in darkness must be dragged into the light period no matter what it is in your life you are living in the light with somebody no matter what no matter what it is now i I, and i know this from experience talking to men who've wrestled with things that their off-ramp from that life has always been get it into the light. And I, I think yeah. about, I think about um, how Jesus engaged this woman who snuck up behind him and touched the hem of his garment when Jesus is, is on his way in a hurry to go heal a little girl who, her, who turns out to uh, have died while he's delayed in the street. Um, you couldn't be more urgent to go heal a girl who's about to die. And this woman touches the hem of his garment. And he stops, even though he knows there's an urgent need that he's headed toward. He stops, and he outs this woman with this very uh, shame-producing thing that she had received healing for. He could have just gone on, her, gone on his way, the woman's healed, and nobody ever knows the wiser. But he stops in the middle of the street and says, who touched me? So he, even with this woman, I think he's, he's not just after her healing. We've talked about this in a previous podcast. He's not just after her physical healing. He wants to get what's in the darkness out in the light. So it has no more power over her as well. There's another healing going on there. And I think that this is Jesus's habit pattern. He wants everything in the dark in the light where, uh, where he can do something with it. And I think that's, that's part of this issue too, is it feeds into what you just said too, Roxy, that people don't have a community around them. Well, you have to have a community around you to get this stuff into the light with somehow. Absolutely. You can't get it Absolutely. in you can't get it into the light with yourself. That's not the same yeah. that's not the same dynamic. Absolutely. And I think so I think a, a community can serve two purposes in that number one, it can help it can be a convicting force that says, Hey, this is this is not the best thing for your life. This isn't great um, or good, and this isn't the best like 
avenue for expressing sex and sexuality, our intimacy. So there's the convicting factor of a community, and then I think there's also the that sort of act, act of putting it in the light, and then people still love you. Um, and so there's this way of, of when you when you reveal your deepest secrets and people still love you, your deepest secrets don't feel so awful anymore. Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of it because those people who do feel guilt and conviction around it, they keep it to themselves because they're afraid of the shame and they're afraid of people judging them. And and so it grows, you know, like, like so many things um, in our lives that are that way. And so I think being able to really be loved um, is, is a huge part of being able to sort of overcome this and want to overcome it. Um, and this so. and this and the and the secrets we keep profoundly leverage our ability to be truly intimate and even though we're Absolutely. we're putting this in the whole context of that this pornography is becoming more normalized and casual in our culture there it's still a largely private exercise that uh, yeah. it may people may say they're casual about it but their behavior shows us that there's still right. something hidden about it, and it's that hiddenness that is such powerful leverage and destructive leverage in relationships. So if there's one thing about Jesus that it belies the popular ways that we see him as a nice guy, he is definitely a disruptor. In every situation or person he meets, he is bent on disrupting, especially when there's something hidden. Um, Mm -hmm. He's going to go—and so it's actually— a great comfort to know that to be in relationship with Jesus, he is going to root out every secret thing. Um, he, he's going, he's going to do it. Um, uh, and that's, it's a, it's a comfort to know that he's on the job <laughs> in, yeah. in a sense. So, Absolutely. well, I, uh, we appreciate your perspective on all this, uh, Roxy and thank, and thank you, Barna and, uh, Josh McDowell, uh, ministry organization for, for taking on such a huge, a, a huge deal in our culture uh, at, and at a time when it most needs to be taken on. So, so thanks for spending this time with us. We really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks Thank so you, Roxy. Yep, absolutely. Okay. There was a lot to think about there. Um, I especially liked how that spun towards the end into, um, so what does this mean for us? And, and what, what can we learn from um, the way that Jesus interacted with people relative to intimacy and and our bodies and uh, things in the dark coming into light, I, I mean, I, I I think that there's some central things to take away from in that. But but Becky, you had some some things that made you pause in the midst of that conversation. And now that it, now that we're looking back on it, what what are some of those things that kind of stuck out to you? One of them is, and this is something that Rick talks about in the Jesus Centered Life. I also just finished reading a book that goes into this a little bit further called A Failure of Nerve, but she kind of touched a a bit in the beginning about empathy. And the thing about empathy is that empathy is different from sympathy and compassion. Empathy has a tendency sometimes to put ourselves so much in the shoes of the other person that we don't allow them to take responsibility. And so I think, especially when you're doing research, I mean, working closely with with youth especially must have been really hard to not just start to totally take on their shoes and their world and everything that's changed in their technology and their roles and relationships and just 
be like, oh my gosh, how could they not end up being addicted to pornography? (laughs) Of course they are. But there is an element of these people, these young kids are going to be husbands, wives, fathers, mothers. And there's definitely an element, I think, that of responsibility. I feel some responsibility out of this. And the hope that I got out of this is that parents pastors and youth workers feel unprepared to deal with this. And so there's a, I I feel like there's an opportunity there. How do we become more prepared to deal with this with our kids? It just reminds me as you're talking about this, that um, after I wrote The Jesus-Centered Life, and I I kind of wrote my first draft of it, and I gave it to my wife to read, and she kind of uh, slow read through the whole thing. One of the primary things that she said to me that really did resonate with me and made me go back and change the book some is she said, Rick, you talk a lot about intimacy with Jesus in this book and you, and you, you frame it in, in a lot of different ways, but don't forget that most people don't know how to be intimate anymore. And Mm -hmm. she just kind of stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, what I asked her, "What, what do you mean? She said, well, it's, we, we, you can't assume that people know what intimacy is, or how to get there. Yeah. And she was so right. And so what I did is I went back into the book, and I slowed down, and I paid better attention to the on-ramps to intimacy, because I think she's she's totally right. And this conversation really, even though what Roxy said is true, you don't we're not seeing the outward evidence that people self-report they're having intimacy issues. We know from experience, um, and t- I know from talking to so many men, about this issue, it is a tremendous underminer of intimacy in their relationships. And Jesus came, you could you could make a case that Jesus came to reestablish intimacy with the Trinity. So it's the I would, whole point. I would say to listeners out there who feel a little maybe hopeless, th- this is a lot of information. When I read this study, I read the whole thing. I was just like, what are we going to do? Um, and I think that's, that is something to camp on is how do we model intimacy to the people around us? Um, and what would it look like for us to start more intentionally modeling intimacy to our kids, to other friends that we have so that people can start to see that in our friendships, in our relationships, relationships, even in our relationship with Jesus, to show people the intimacy that you have with him. That's a huge opportunity. Even to have, now this is going to, it would freak me out if I was if I was hearing what I'm about to say, but even to the extent that you have some fearless conversations with the people in your life and ask them, what does intimacy mean to you? If you have a spouse, what does intimacy mean to you? Do they automatically go to a place that they assume is intimacy? But to start to have conversations with people in your life that say, uh, what does intimacy look like for you when you experience it? Not just between men and women, but between same-gender friends. What, what does intimacy look like? And, and what is okay and what isn't okay? And, and what hurdles and challenges have you faced in your life relative to intimacy? Because my wife is right. All of us have challenges in not only understanding intimacy, but growing in it. And, and again, to get what's in the dark into the light is to be able to say, here's where I'm challenged. Here's, mm-hmm. here's where I'm broken. Here's where I'm a mess. And this gets in the way of my ability to be intimate. Once it's out in the light, you can do something with it. And more to the point, there's a powerful dynamic that the Spirit of Jesus can do something with it. When well, it's that, in the light. that leads me to my second thing. She said this over and over again, and it was the word discipline. And 
the the thing about discipline, it, there's nothing wrong with it, but discipline actually comes from the Holy Spirit. And when we have to force ourselves to be disciplined, we're, we end up working hard to get better. And what we need to do is focus on attachment because when you start to attach yourself to Jesus in the way that we talk about it in this podcast, that all of our resources focus on helping you to attach yourself to Jesus. That's our whole mission here is how do we get people attached to Jesus? How do we get your kids attached to Jesus? Discipline becomes an outcome of the Holy Spirit and that attachment. And so you don't have to work hard to get better. It, it's an it's an outcome of just resting and relying on him. And it's actually a relief point. When I hear the word discipline, I think, oh, that's hard. This is not hard. Attaching yourself to Jesus is not hard. It's, it's relief and it's rest. And he provides all of the stuff that you need to, to kick all the other stuff out. It's relief and rest and power. I mean, that's not a word we throw around very much, but the power of Jesus flowing through you because you're attached to him like a branch is to a vine is palpable. This is really the reason why we talk so much about the fallacy of trying harder to be better. We don't have the power to persist in that kind of life, but he does. We need what he has. Just like the woman at the well needed living water to change her life, we need, we're no different than her. We need his living water that can spring up as life in us. So um, what you just said, I couldn't literally have said it better than myself. So yay, Becky. I've been Becky hanging Nader. out with him too long. <laughs> well, listeners, thank you so much for uh, listening in today. Um, and we know that this this can uh, really open up some some pretty significant emotional portals for you today. So please do interact with us. You can go to our site on the JesusCenterLife.com. We also uh, we have a Facebook page that um, you can respond to. You can respond to on the podcast page where you listen to this. Um, so we, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we want you to feel like you're not in this alone, that you have advocates and supporters uh, that want to come alongside you. So, so thanks for engaging in this. Again, this is Season 2, Episode 8 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. And it's a podcast from Lifetree. So subscribe to us on iTunes for all of the latest podcasts, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye.